here today, Lars, to talk about fiction. Okay, let's uh, let's let's start with the basic, Lars. Right, what is a fictional object? What is a fictional thing? Does it differ? Do they differ? Is there is a novel fictional different in a fictional way to uh, a poem or? You know where I'm going. I'm talking about Plato here, really. The distinction between appearance and reality. So what are your thoughts on that? It's just a nice, easy one to start you. <laughs> so what is fiction? What happens when we start to write fiction? You, you mentioned Plato there. And let's think mm. about Plato. And why does um, Plato present the life, the thought of Socrates in, in, I guess, what is a kind of fiction? I guess, you know, he, he would have presented it as a kind of fiction, given that there are other pupils of Socrates who wrote came up with a very different Socrates to Plato's. So what's gained by putting it in literature? Well, one of the things about Socrates is we learn about his life. We learn about the kind of person he was. We learn about the kind of people he interacted with. And again, some of this is fictional because Plato's exaggerating. Plato is uh, picking out particular details that will foreground certain aspects of um, of, of Socrates. I think here of what um, the great biographer Boswell Wrote, wrote of Dr. Johnson, the idea of making a nice correction. This is not quite Socrates. Socrates is, is, can be presented in a way that is actually more loyal to Socrates than the ordinary everyday Socrates. Through these nice corrections, these, these features of Socrates' life that make him even more Socrates-like than he, than he was in reality. And what I refer to here are the details that Plato picks out. The Socrates is the pursuer of Alcibiades. Socrates is the person who walks barefoot. The Socrates is the person who, on the brink of going into the banquet, stands on the threshold, lost in some reverie, looking up into the sky. The Plato selects these aspects of, 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 um, of Socrates, and he basically fictionalizes in doing so. He exaggerates, he hyperbolizes, but in doing so, he's more true to the real Socrates than perhaps any verbatim account could be. So the idea is there, Lars, I think. And it's it's usually when we when we teach philosophy to you know first years Plato to NATO what do we say Plato is about at the idea, the truth, the eternal, the historical, and uh, fiction has to be banned and it's it's secondary. It's a form of dissimulation, ruse, fabrication, invention, right? And what you're saying, I think. <laughs> is that actually there's something about literature, about fiction that can enable us to see the truth or allows us to capture an essential type of truth? So literary writing for Plato seems to be necessary, and it's and and you know Plato's work I think is palpably literary. It's not something which is trying to pass itself off as the truth. I don't think so anyway. I'm not sure what his readers might have thought at the time. But the idea then is Socrates can only be presented in a literary manner. Then literature will allow him to, to allow Plato, the author to isolate those things about Socrates that make him what he is, um, that Socrates only really comes to life when presented in this manner where, here I am, lost in my own sentence, wondering in my own sentence, where, where am I taking this <laughs> sentence? Socrates is someone who needs to be hyperbolized, and only then can we get the real Socrates. So Plato's um, written work, we're told, is to be understood in ref with reference to a, a hidden secret doctrine it was only available to his pupils in the oral form. Uh -huh. And the written stuff is something different. It, it, perhaps it, these are exercises for people to work with. Perhaps they're the occasion of spiritual exercises that like Pierre Adot talks about in his work on the ancient Greeks. And what Pierre Adot argues is that philosophy at that time to be a philosopher was to be 
a follower of a certain think, thinker, a figure who embodied philosophy um, with their lives. And that Socrates becomes someone then who would be the object of a, of, a, of a spiritual exercise, the person we have to copy, the person we have to resemble in some way. Not just their thought, but their life, insofar as their lives incarnate their thoughts. Their, their thoughts. And that would be Socrates in, in Plato's dialogue, a larger-than-life Socrates, an exaggerated and hyperbolized Socrates. But in order to, to present Socrates in this way, Plato has to take this detour through literary writing. That's what seems to be necessary here. That Plato, although he says all kinds of terrible things about literary writing, needs it in order to convey, to portray his, his Socrates. And it would seem then that the question is life. You mentioned Pierre Radeau, and it's his thought is you know, philosophy is a way of life, right? Directly connected to, to life. It's about making life explicit in some way. And I want to get to ask you to figure out what you're thinking about that. When we think about writers, uh, we and I know you published a book on Blanchot, and he's very for the listeners, Blanchot is someone who's very much anti the representational idea of literature, the idea that literature is a copying of of the world, you know, that literature is something, or fiction is something that you can technically construct through style, rhythm, meter, form, all of those things. And the best literature is the literature that's that's a, a presents a really good semblance to reality. Versilimitude. And Blanchot's idea, and you know more about this than I do, Lars, Blanchot's idea is that actually, no, that's not the purpose of literature. Literature actually has to actively resist that. It has to resist the thought that life is something capturable, that life is something classifiable. So you're referring to Blanchot here. Blanchot, that great literary critic, the great writer, the philosopher, born in 1907. And Blanchot wrote about his own, you know, you know, when you write your bio as a, as a writer, you have to say things about yourself. You know, so-and-so lives in yeah. whatever place and has two small children. But Blanchot wrote of himself, his life is entirely devoted to literature and to the silence that is proper to it. That's Blanchot's bio that presented to his publishers. His life is entirely devoted to literature and to the silence that is proper to it. And this is the idea for Blanchot that, you know, there's the, a the way of living um, literature. There is a way of, of living this, but this demand the literature places upon him, the imperative the literature places upon his life, is one that requires a silence. And a silence about what? Well, a silence about all the normal things we might include in a biography. And that's all that Blanchot tells us. And the other thing he, you know, he 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 didn't supply his, his, his publishers with was a photograph of himself. There's no photo of Blanchot in the publisher's files. There's no more details about his life other than this this record that he's devoted to literature. So his life is simply lived in devotion to literature and this silence in which literature is surrounded. So this, this silence refers to, you know, it's about Blanchot's own life. We don't know much about it, except in passing every now and again. For Blanchot to write is to pass over to a depersonalization. We're not mm. ourselves when we, when we write. Writing carries us over into a depersonalization where we're no longer sure who we are. We're no longer sure what we're doing when we're writing. And normally in life, we think of ourselves as having projects, as having plans. And we throw ourselves into the future. We think tomorrow I'll be doing this. Next week I'll be doing that. In Blanchot's work, to write is to be without a future that we can predict and understand. We might understand literature to be all about constructing a plot, producing a convincing structure in which events can take place in the narrative. For Blanchot, to write is to open yourself in some way to the unknown. 
And this relation to the unknown is such that it robs us of our ordinary capacity to be ourselves. We're no longer able to produce ourselves in some way. We're no longer able to produce words on a page. For Blanchot to write requires this moment of suspension, the interruption of the ability to write, and indeed the ability to be anything at all, the ability to produce. So what for Blanchot is writing? The writing of that moment is a putting down the pen, it's a relinquishing of one's powers, it's simply letting letting what happen, letting the suspension occur. Okay, after that moment, we might go on to write, but writing is linked to this, this suspension of time, when we're no longer sure what we are, what we're doing, where literature is taking us. And that's what Blanchot tries to honour with this notion of silence in the little bio he wrote for his publishers. That was a typical enough idea for the avant-garde in that period. I'm thinking here of folk like Beckett and, and, and Blanchot as well. And what's the name of that Austrian writer that escapes me? The Man Without Content, Robert Musil. These were very much in the trying to be innovators, trying to be experimental in that modernist moment where they're trying to, well, they're, they're, they're railing against all types of things. They've, they've got political stuff going on. You think of someone like Elliot or Pound, but they're reacting against melodrama. They're reacting against naturalism. They're trying to bring writing, someone like Beckett especially. You talk about the silence. That, you know, you know, think of Beckett's pared-down prose and he tries to get to something ineliminable. He's trying to express... So is it is it some type of mystery or mystique? Thanks, Pat. Well, yeah, we think of think of what Beckett's up to. You know, why do you write, Beckett is asked. Why do you write? He says, it's all I'm good for. I'm good for nothing else. It's all I'm good for. This is all, this is all hmm. I can do. There's a sense in which for Beckett, writing is linked to an imperative. Same as Blanchot. One has to write. Uh, writing is important. You know, writing is necessary. We find it in Kafka as well, this idea that writing is something you simply have to do. When Blanchot is asked a similar question, when Blanchot is asked, why, do, why write? He thinks, um, he quotes Martin Luther. And Martin Luther says, you know, famously, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. May God help me. That's what Luther says, you know, this is his declaration. Here I stand, I can't do otherwise, may God hem, um, help me. And Blanchot quotes this, and then he says, he said, I would translate modestly, in the space of writing, writing, not writing, here I sit hunched over, I cannot do otherwise, I expect no help from beneficent um, powers. So Blanchot and Beckett likewise, there's an, there's an imperative to write, there's a need to write, and this writing is one which, in the period in which they're writing, becomes, I don't know, what would the word be here? Um, nude. It, it, it becomes something which tries to free itself from the, the old ways of writing, from plot, from the normal ideas of, you know, of what, what character might be, from the normal forward progress of a work of fiction. So for Blanchot, for Beckett, the idea is that writing becomes an imperative, that almost shakes itself free from any kind of biography, um, and there's a silence here instead of instead of biography. Think here, for example, of Beckett's The Unnameable. In, in Beckett's The Unnameable, what do we find? This is the last full-length work of uh, Beckett's Siege in the Room period. And it explicitly expresses the question, you know, why do you write? Why do you need to say anything at all? Why bother? And here, the, the narrator of The Unnameable um, claims to be in touch with a voice that comes from outside, a voice that comes from without, which can no longer be attributed to a character, nor indeed to the inner life of any person. This novel without characters, the unnameable, um, has these figures, what's called figures instead, Mahoud, 
worm, anonymous others, a master, just figures without action. And all these figures try to stage, try to reflect upon the relation to this imperious voice, this voice that seems to come from outside. And that's what Beckett's trying to write about. So the unnameable becomes a channel for work for these words, the unnameable, the novel, the unnameable, the character, the figure, the channel for these words, the bearer of, 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 of a voice. The unnameable, the character, claims that this voice comes from outside. But this coming from outside bears with it an imperative. And what the unnameable says is, I have to speak whatever that means. Having nothing to say but the words of others, I have to speak. No one compels me to. There is no one. It's an accident, a fact. But this, this, this compulsion to speak comes from an accident, something contingent, that is nevertheless real. And that's the kind of imperative to which Blanchot's work also tries to answer. A voice that seems to come from without. A voice that seems to have no content. That is just uh, uh, an opening of a vocation, a calling. You're called to say something, but what? And sometimes these authors will throw out this voice. They'll throw out this voice some fragments of biography, some bits of their lives. You know, Blanchot's famous uh, a primal scene. This moment where Blanchot, late in his career, in his 70s, seems to write about his own childhood, seems to write about a moment in which, as a child, as a boy of seven or eight, he's open to, he's open to what? The absence of meaning, a kind of nothingness, something which requires a silence on his part, something which separates him from, the, from his parents, from adults around him who try to comfort him, something which opens him to the interminable, to the incessant, and again, it's this incursion, this voice from elsewhere that bears Blanchot up and carries him away. So for both these thinkers, for Beckett, for Blanchot, and perhaps we can think of Musel in similar ways, it's a question of attesting to this, this voice, this voice that carries them away, that dispossesses them, which makes them try and find words with which to express it. But they never seem their words. We get a new kind of practice here, um, a sort of strange autobiographical practice where the elements of autobiography you find in their work is simply a way of trying to throw words at something, to give words to something, which is itself contentless. I think here of that famous quotation, the famous thing that Beckett says in his dialogue with uh, Georges de Thuy, the expression that there is nothing to express, nothing with which to express, nothing from which to express, no power to express, no desire to express, together with the obligation to express. These authors, these modernist authors, are all about this obligation. This begs the question for me, Lars, that these writers that you're interested in, they're trying to express the inexpressible in some way. Uh, I think that's a common denominator in, in the thinkers that you're interested. You're interested in Blanchot, Levinas, I think, and Ve and Wittgenstein, who've written a novel on Wittgenstein as well, and Nietzsche. And but what I want to get you to is the purpose of language here. What's the function of language? Because in some way... It's not like Nabokov or Nabokov, the, the, who's, who's very much all about the style, all about the prose. They are in some way trying, almost in that Wittgensteinian way, they're trying to undermine language or trying to get beyond language in some way that language is a, a constraint upon their ability to express something actual, something real. Is that right? Am I getting that right? Is that a... I think that is right. Uh, what we find in, the, in these texts by Blanchot, by Beckett, by others, is a sparsity. There's very little um, in, their, in, way, in the way of plot. Their characters do not stand out as strong individuals. They're not sharply delineated. Very little happens in their work, in their, in their fiction. It's very uneventful. The attention does not fall upon action at all. It's more about a kind of deactivation 
a deactivation, a failure of the ability to project oneself, to have plans, to reflect. And that's the idea, I think. In their work, we find a slowness, an exhaustion, a suspension of meaning, a corroding of uh, the characters they present, their, 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 um, their personalities, their self-enclosure, an emptying of their private concerns, a flattening of them, but exposure of these characters to one another. So we find in, in, in their fiction this lack of action, this suspicion about depiction, very little of narration, very little of description. We find a literature which moves very slowly, that seems exhausted, that seems thin in its meaning. And this is part of an attempt to invent a new kind of language, a new kind of language which circumvents the normal powers of denotation that narrative language always exerts. So this new kind of writing does not have a fixed content or structure. It's not primarily concerned with referentiality, with describing, with showing, with telling. This kind of language is weak, it's slow, it's exhausted. And instead of being about meaning, identity, about intimacy, it's about the dissipation. So this is the idea for these writers. Narrative uh, presents a voice which never attains the fullness of a, of a self capable of generating discourse. And in this stripping back, in this falling away, what we find is that this voice comes into contact with what? with the materiality of language, with just words and words and words and words. So that, I think, is what Blanchot searches for. I think Beckett finds um, searches for it as well. This idea where language becomes something outside of what we require from it, what we want from it. But language almost seems to contemplate itself in some peculiar way, its own profundity. So this is, I think, their quest, and this is what makes their oeuvre so particular. I wonder... There seems to be, you know, when we when we when we get asked to justify our existence uh, to our bosses and to governments and uh, economic fora, one of the things that we always have to do is try to say why is literature useful or why is fiction useful? And in some way, you say that it's absolutely not at all useful. It's an absolutely anathema to utility. Sure, yeah. This is the idea that for these for these authors, for Beckett, you know, Beckett's asked, why do you write? It's all I'm good for. I'm good for nothing else. You know, this is all I am. It's all I can do. I can do very little. We think of Kafka as well. Kafka says similar things about his work and one of the ways in which he, um, I think, dramatises his relationship to his creativity, to literary writing, is in the figure of the Hunger Game. And remember the, the, the joke, the end of the, of the Hunger Game, of, of the, sorry, the Hunger, the Hunger Artist, the Hunger Game, my God. The Hunger, the hunger <laughs> <Great> Artist. movie. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the Hunger Artist, we learn why the Hunger Artist starves himself. It's not because of some great ascetic effort to attain, I don't know, some kind of purity. The Hunger Artist starves himself because he could not find the food he liked. He couldn't find anything he liked. Like was for Kafka, he couldn't find anything he wanted in the world. So whatever it is that, that Beckett wants, this idea I couldn't do otherwise, is nevertheless worthwhile. It's nevertheless worth fighting for him because there's nothing in the world that he wants other than this. So this is the idea that there's something more useful than the affairs of the world. Use, perhaps, is, is the wrong word to use here. Use, this word's been captured. We know what, what you know how the word use is deployed. Use is about results, about outcomes, about outputs. Use is always understood in terms of um, ends and means. But here we find another kind of use. The language, I don't know what the word, what the expression would be, uses itself. It, you know, language um, becomes that which is which is not useful. And let me draw in another person into our list of names here, George Bataille. 
And for George Bataille, language, when it, when it comes literary, when it comes poetic, is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of the meaning, uh, the meaningful, of the useful. It's a simple burning upwards. Words no longer mean. Words no longer offer themselves to conventional meaning. Words themselves foreground themselves in their in their burning, in a sacrificial bonfire, in that which destroys the capacity to mean and the capacity of the person who tries to mean something. So that's how I understand what needs to be done to the language of utilitarianism. Set it on fire. Let it all <laughs> burn up. Sacrifice it. To what? Sacrifice it to nothing. Hey, just, just don't burn books, yeah? Um, <laughs> which, which, interestingly, is... Um, uh, which I think, actually... I mean, I said that in jest and passing, but it is actually the point of, uh, of, 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 of what the fascists were doing there in, like, you know, in the 30s and stuff like that. Was, uh, they were very, very, very much showing that the, that the, the, the novels and the literatures and the intellectuals and the ideas and the philosophies that were distasteful to them were actually valuable because of their inutility that makes sense because there are things that undermine sort of a totalitarian worldview that undermine the sheer unadulterated certainty of 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 fascism all firm and decided speech all speech is uttered from a dictator all speech of this kind is what literature calls into question and literary writing is good for nothing is good for nothing but nothing is as good as writing in some sense Writing is the last holdout against the dispersion of the so-called useless, of that which is without a meaningful purpose in the world of the fascists, or for that matter, in our world. So this is the idea for Blanchot, for Beckett, for these thinkers. They're good for nothing but writing, but nothing is quite as good as writing. Nothing is as good as writing because it preserves what is um, useless, what is purposeless what uh, means that language is, a, is not, not simply a tool at our disposal. So this is the vindication of writing that we find in their work. Um, it's, it's a hyperbolic, uh, important uh, vindication, because it means there's something in writing which escapes the dictator, which escapes speech, which comes from those who think they can determine what they mean. So that's why someone like Kafka can write, can write in his diary, nothing else will ever satisfy me. When it comes to writing, that's why Blanchot can write of a call of an all-powerful affirmation. This is what literature allows them. This is what writing allows them. It's the unexpected word. It's something which we don't know that we, uh, that we that we want to say. Something we discover as we're saying it. It's an adventure in that sense, an opening. So that's what literature can do. It can reach this point of absence where literature disappears, where language simply becomes this idle profundity where the word becomes being. A being does not signify the world, does not reveal the world, but reveals itself. At that moment, language moves over into this other dimension. It becomes sacrificial. It becomes a burning upwards to no God, to nothing. So maybe slightly to change tact in Lars with the, the, the trust of the conversation. So a totalitarian novel is a contradiction in terms. It wouldn't be very good, <laughs> a good novel anyway. We, 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 we do say that, though, don't we? Like uh, novels for purposes, didactic novels, or didactic fiction, or didactic poetry, or didactic epic, whatever, is actually, tends not to be that good because it's, it's enthralled to a specific purpose, which is communicating a political point. I suppose that that's, I think that's right. The idea then is that uh, totalitarian, totalitarian um, literary writing would be a contradiction in terms. And why? Because literary writing is about a vocation. It's about a calling. And literary writing that we find in the 20th century thinkers of the kind we've been talking about 
It's stripped of everything but its vocation. All it becomes is, is this call. And this call is a leave taking of everything that hitherto constituted the literary space. It's a way of leaving behind that old world of the certainties of plot and character. So what we find in this thing is, is a distrust of strong characters, of decided speech. We find a favouring of linguistic indeterminateness and narrative slowness and weak and inactive characters and narrative exhaustion, semantic thinness. That's what we find, an aesthetic minimalism. And this is an attempt to escape these firm and powerful and decisive voices, these strong characters that we find, of course, in totalitarianism, that we also find in everyday life. We find it in the circumstances in which we live, where we're writing CVs for ourselves, where we're updating our websites or our social media sites, where we're making claims for ourselves about what we want in the future, about where it's all going, uh, these kinds of things. So it's, it's the same thing that's being attacked all the time. So we find in these thinkers a new, a new way of writing with few descriptive details, where characters do very little but spend time together, where there's no action. This is deliberate uh, movement in fiction. I mean, to bring in another name here, for me, one of the, the great writer of, of this kind of fiction, uh, Marjorie Duras. Oh, yeah, 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 she's great, yeah. Duras yeah, yeah. does this um, so fantastically in her work with very little character development, uh, with the, con uh, the, the, the contact between uh, the self and other, such that the self is overturned in um, its sovereignty, and a, a constant um, a, attempt to expose the self to vulnerability, to weakness. Um, over and over again, we get a sense of a diminished selfhood, of a self-destitution, of a turning aside from everything decisive. Always exhaustion, always silence in Jurassic's work and from from you know, that great period in the late 50s onwards to the last thing she wrote. Exhaustion and weariness over and over again. So this is a whole aesthetic and a whole bunch of thinkers are writing this way. But of course, this is this is what my, my fiction is completely different to um, the work of these wonderful writers. Oh, uh, won't have none of it, Lars. <laughs> you're in the you're in the you're in the the Galacticos. You're right up there. <laughs> so, so the, the, what interests me is a different response to the same issue. The issue that we find Blanchot, Beckett, and Duras responding to is you know, is identity, fixed identities, fixed subjects, strong characters, strong plots. But there are other ways of responding to this, too. And that's what we find in the work of another author who's very important to me. Um, his name is Thomas Bernhard, the great Austrian writer. I think he's born in 1930 or so. So Thomas Bernhard is, is another he has another kind of response, which is very different to Beckett, to Blanchot, to Duras. And what Beckett seeks in his work is, is the counterword, what Paul Salan calls the Gegenwort, the counterword, which lets him try to write against exhausted narrative ploys, exhausted forms, against um, all the techniques of the, of the novelistic craft, the well-developed characters, complex plots, rich descriptions, all these things uh, Bernhard writes against. He overturns these, these structural certainties of these conventional novels. And why does Bernhard do this? Because for him, coming back to the topic of totalitarianism, um, fiction is complicit. It's, it's culturally complicit in the horrors of the 20th century. The conventional forms of fiction are culturally complicit in the very way that they present reality. Now, the, these, these novels present, present reality as being experienced in a certain way, as being narratable in a certain way. And this is exactly what 
Thomas Bernhard refuses. There's an amazing quotation, which I have right here on my wall. I'm going to read it to you. It's what he says on the occasion. That's handy. <laughs> yeah. On the occasion of winning one of many literary prizes. This is what he says. He says, the time for tales is over. The tales of cities and the tales of states and all the scientific states, all the scientific tales. The universe itself is no longer a tale. Europe, the most beautiful Europe, is dead. That is the truth. The Bernard then, Europe is dead. The European dream is over. Bernard is writing in the wake of World War II. And for him, for Bernhard, storytelling too is over. If it isn't just to perpetuate the old dreams, if it isn't going to perpetuate the, the familiar cultural complicity. So that's what Bernhard does in his own fiction, which for me is particularly inspiring. It's very different to this exhausted and minimal style that we find in Blanchot, in Jurass, in Beckett as well. What we find instead is something um, much more violent, something much more um, fierce in the way in which Bernhard writes. So for Bernhard, what we find instead is a hyperbolic and wild style, a style which carries us away, a style of very long and complex sentences, a style of, of variations on these phrases which, which become again and again, which are italicised and simply bang themselves into our heads as, as we read. And this is the, the relentless rhythm that so many of us love, the musicality that we find in, in Bernhard's prose. So what we find in Bernhard's prose as he narrates these terrible events that he writes about is a, um, is a hyperbolic style which I, I found so tremendously liberating. Uh, I find so tremendously exciting and exhilarating to read. And that's, it's this style which actually speaks more to me now than the Beckettian, Blanchottian, Jurassian style, because we find here a joy in rhythm, not in the sense of some pulsed beat, but a dance of language, a Dionysianism, which unites death and chaos which unites the darkest topics and yet the joy of being able to express a music that creates in its destruction. So that's what I find in Bernhard's work. And that's why I try my own very feeble way to um, animate in my own writing. This is another way of understanding what Bataille calls a sacrifice. And this is a wild, burning sacrifice that we find in Bernhard's writing. Can I just ask then, Lars, there's tons I want to talk to you about from what you're just saying there. Well, 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 the first things, in terms of what you're saying, in terms of a text, something like Mein Kampf, it's, it's just... Now, that's a book that's got a vocation, but it's got it's also an absolute certainty. I mean, if you've ever read it, like it's just like it's a long, elongated rant, basically, poorly written and all kinds of ideas, but it's, it's just filled with certainty, filled with... Uh, dogma and, and purpose I'm, I'm trying to think though right that's where we've taken our our conversation the idea of a totalitarian novel is upon a contradiction in terms of like i totally get what you're saying i'm trying to think of like writers who are like good and right wing or, or fascistic louis ferdinand yeah. Celine. Celine or like hamson perhaps i was thinking as well yeah not hamson Sure. And we, we get it in philosophy as well, as we think of someone like Heidegger, who is like undoubtedly a brilliant mind and a brilliant philosopher, but he was a fascist. He was a bona fide Nazi and uh, quite a, quite evident anti-Semite as well, according to recent findings. I think what I'm trying to parse there, Lars, with that point is what's the difference between a, a screed like Mein Kampf and something like 
uh, Hunger by Knut Hampson, which is a sort of a brilliant novel, really inventive, really formalistically interesting, and he's invented new styles, and he's doing all the things that you're talking about. He's talking about in that novel. I mean, I, I recommend it's a good novel. I would recommend people read it. It's really interesting. It's kind of like I guess like sort of stream of consciousness, proto Joyce, I suppose. But but the idea is that he's he's also into this idea of depersonalization. Is that something you've thought about? You know, those like the good fascist writer and the bad fascist writer. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So there's a danger in the language of a dictator, which is there in rhythm. Now, which is what Hitler is so great at in his speeches. He can whip the the, 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 the crowd up into a frenzy by use of rhythm. Here I think of Hamson's one example. It's been a long time since I read Hamson. But I think of Louis Ferdinand Céline um, as being particularly egregious here because he wrote in exactly the same language that we find in his fiction. He wrote these three screeds, uh, anti-Semitic screeds, screeds against the Jews during World War II. So it's Louis Ferdinand Céline is particularly um, uh, perplexing as a writer for me because I say I admire the style of his early work pre-war and I enjoy the work of his post-war. I enjoy his writing his post-war fiction. But there is the problem of his um, anti-Semitic fiction. And I said earlier that Bernhard writes a counterword, a Gegenwort in uh, Paul Salam's uh, vocabulary. So what Bernhard does in his writing is that he examines the conditions of complicity, complicity in disaster and horror. Bernhard's often presented as a as a ranter, as someone who simply right. goes off on one, off he goes on his rants, off and off and off he goes. He rants about this, he rants about that. There's a list of different things. You could even put running headers down the margins of his um, <laughs> fiction with different things that he's ranting about. But that is to miss the fundamental point in Bernhard's work, that Bernhard does not excuse his narrators from the things that he turns against. His narrators are never certain of themselves. They can never rely upon themselves. Yes, they seem to give voice to these opinions, to the, the, the churn, the music of these, of these variations on the things with which the narrators are disgusted. But the narrators do not spare themselves either. They are also victim of these, these so-called rants, these invectives. I think that's the crucial point. In Bernhard, what we find on one page, there'll be a rant against three ring binders. On the next page, there'll be a rant, as we call them, but rant is a, a crude way of talking here, theme and variations, perhaps, a fugue, perhaps, a fugue on, I don't know, uh, the Catholic uh, Catholic, uh, the Catholic relationship to the Nazis in the church in Austria. So what we find in Bernhard's um, text is a movement from topic to topic to topic where it's really quite unstable. There's no, there's no particular object to this. What we find is a language has gone almost completely crazy and turned against its own narrator. And that's why, for me, uh, Bernhard is doing much more in Celine in the writings um, of the, you know, in Celine's writings in the, in the period of the World War II, because Bernhard's narrators lack any kind of reassurance of old norms of stable and dependable values. They're not nostalgic like Hitler, like Celine, for a society where there were no Jews. They're not, they're not um, wanting to, um, to drive out impure elements from the world around them. So Bernhard's narrators lack any safe position from which they can judge the world around them. 
They're always at the edge of chaos and they themselves are implicated in their own rhetoric. They're always protesting against everything and nothing. Yes, they protest against Nazism and the Austrian Catholic Church, but they also protest against three ring binders and all kinds of other nonsense. <laughs> so what we find in their work then, uh, in, in Bernhard's work, is this working against, this working against anything firm and decided. So for me, what Bernhard is doing is analogous to what we find in Blanchot, in Beckett, in Duras. He's doing something different, but it's a similar writing strategy, I think. The other writer that what you're saying reminds me of, or who, the teams you're talking about is Annie Arnaud, uh, who's the recent uh, Nobel laureate. I think it was uh, not this year. This year it was John Foss before that was Annie Arnaud. She's like, uh, uh, particularly in her work, uh, The Years, it's it's a, it's a biography of years. It's it starts off a stream of consciousness, practically freshly minted uh, child, and it did its uh, an act of profound depersonalization. That's what the literature is about. She's trying to. It's, it's almost like sort of a sociological novel. I know that sounds bad, but she's talking about the the trends and currents that make life in France in the twentieth century possible, especially in, in 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 her later writing writing. And that is that sense of depersonalization that's it's of almost like a secular transcendence isn't it that's what the fiction you're into is trying to do maybe secular is probably not quite the right word it's trying to yeah it's trying to get back to the world rather than to the gods of dogma to the gods of certainty i suppose yeah that's right the attempt is to break through to something to open oneself to an experience of language and this is experience of some, this is experience in a similar way to what we find in the mystics perhaps as you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier pat um, there's an openness to a transcendence. But what opens here does not have any determinate content. There's a transcendence without content. It's an openness. An openness to what? We might think here of another, if we open another archive up, uh, we, we think about someone like Ger- Gershom Scholem. And we think of um, figures around Scholem. Maybe Kafka there is, is there too somewhere. But in these thinkers, what we find is the sense in which revelation occurs. The revelation is contentless. So what is revealed? Nothing. The nothing an empty transcendence. And likewise with these writers who I prize, when Beckett says, you know, the expression is nothing to express, nothing with which to express, nothing from which to express, no power to express, no desire to express, together with the obligation to express. The obligation is about expressing nothing, nothingness, an emptiness. We call it also a silence, a suspension. That's what, that's what, is, um, that, that's what these thinkers we've been, and these writers uh, are trying to depict in some way. So the idea then is, is this um, is an empty transcendence which, which remains, which, which has been passed down to us um, through religion. And Sholem will even suggest, and Jacob Tarbez makes a similar claim, Sholem will even suggest that at last, you know, this is what transcendence always was. It's been revealed, it's been shown to us. Tarbez suggests this too, that at last, finally, uh, revelation has been emptied of its content, leaving what? leaving simply a relationship to the unknown. And that relationship to the unknown is what religion was always about all along. It's just a question of trying to find that nothingness. So many of these writers who excite me, they do something similar to what we discussed earlier about the ancient Greeks. We talked about the idea of spiritual exercises for the ancient Greeks. We find similar exercises in these 20th century writers. What is the exercise in these writers? Well, it's trying to live in relation to the nothing, trying to live in relation to this empty transcendence. The way I think about this is what Bernhard calls in his work, Thomas Bernhard calls in his work, 
in the opposite direction. There's a moment in one of the volumes of memoir that Bernhard wrote where he recalls being a young, unemployed man. You know, he's, he's, he's 16, 16 years old and he goes, he goes on to the employment clerk, the employment office. He says, you know, have you got a job for me? And the woman in there says, well, we've got this great job for you. It's in this really posh part of uh, Vienna. You go over there, you'll be all right. And when Bernard <laughs> says, no, I don't want that job. And he goes through, you know, goes through various jobs that are offered to him. He says no to each one. And then the employment <laughs> officer offers him this job in some mouldy, cold cellar, you know, just doing manual work in a really rough part of Vienna. And Bernhard takes that job. Why? Because for Bernhard, it's a question of going in the opposite direction. So for these writers, the spiritual exercise of their work is living in some sense in the opposite direction to their times, living in the opposite direction. This might remind us of uh, St. Paul of the New Testament and his and his um, letter to the Corinthians, where he recommends the Corinthians that the way they live, thinking about the second coming of Jesus, thinking about the, the imminent apocalypse, the way they live is to simply abandon um, any resistance to the world, simply to live as though not. You know, you're a husband as though not a husband. You're working as a, let's say, for example, as an academic, as not an academic. You're not engaged. You're not um, in the world in the same way. You're removed from the world in some way. And that's why I find in these thinkers like Bernhard, all of them are trying to live, all of them are trying to write, all of them are trying to live this calling of writing in a way that makes them no longer complicit in the horrors around them. How are they going to do this? What techniques do they do they use? It's different in each case. But for Bernhard, for Beckett, for Duras, for Blanchot, these are all trying to live an exemplary life in some way. It's not it's not by chance that they've been called saints. Is it Edith Wishagrod who calls them saints of the postmodern? There's an attempt to live in a particular way according to demand of writing, which takes us right back to that, uh, the way in which Blanchot writes his bio. His life is dedicated to the keeping of the science of literature, the science that belongs to literature. This is a way of living against the world as we currently find it. The world that demands that each of us is a self, that demands that we relate to one another as selves. In each case, these thinkers are trying to open themselves to the other in some way. And that's what, Becky, uh, that's what Bernhard does as well in that great novel, the last novel published you know, after, he, after he died, Extinction. The end of that novel, a huge novel. At the end of that novel, the, the, the character who's, who's inherited an immense fortune leaves it all to the Jews of Vienna. He gives it all away. He no longer wants it. He gives it all away. Always this attempt to respond to the other, to do justice to the other. That's what we find in these 20th century thinkers, which makes them, each of them, an example of, um, of, of the counterword, of writing the counterword. It's a very exacting form of life that they pursue and that they uh, offer others as the example. I'm trying to think when you said we must live without content, and I was like going, golly, you know, when I'm going to get my cornflakes in the morning, <laughs> you know, getting my cap, it's like, you know, do I still, am I, am I, am I actually confronted with the metaphysical nothingness? Yes, I am. That's always what happens to me. <laughs> But in, a, but in a more Chaplin-esque way, perhaps, <laughs> than anything as grandiose as that. Well, in yeah. my own fiction, what I've tried to do, the, the, the way I got my own fiction going was by writing about what it means to live in a world where we might admire these thinkers, we might admire these writers, but we live in the ordinary, prosaic, everyday world. As these individuals did, as Blanchard did, as Beckett did, as, as, as Bernhard did, they all lived in the world in ordinary sense. 
it's always very interesting to read about the lives of these people, how they actually live their lives on a day-to-day basis. Fascinating. But my fiction began when I started writing about what it means to come after these thinkers, these writers, these novelists, these literary figures. What does it mean to live in our world? And our world for me is really quite different to the world in which Beckett lived. Because in our world, and especially in the UK, in the Anglophone world in general, I imagine it's the same in the US, the prestige of literature has fallen away. I don't really know people who read very much, apart from my colleagues who are in creative writing. In general, the people I know are not really engaged in reading fiction. You know, fiction is not something which particularly excites people, or for that matter, poetry. It's something which you might read in certain phases of your life, and you might be nostalgic for those phases of your life. But you simply do not have the time, the headspace, the ability to give yourself over to literary fiction. That's certainly in my experience. I find it really hard to write, uh, to read literary fiction now, just to just get just get my mind in that space where literary reading is possible. So my fiction began those first three novels of mine with an attempt to work out well what might writing be in the wake of these great thinkers. What what, what is writing about? What do we write about? Can I ask you, Lars, why the novel as a as a type of fiction? What what drew you to that particular? Uh, form of, of of literature, you know, why not poetry? Why not theatre? Why not song? Why not opera? What is it about the novel specifically? Do you think? You know, it, it, it's it's a genre full of the prosaic, full of the everyday, the prose of the world. It's full of the nonsense, full of the ephemera, full of all those silly little things with which we occupy ourselves. I should say that I fell into the um, into writing fiction from writing a blog. So I kept a blog, and on, on this blog, I used to write about all these mundane and dreary things, all these everyday things, all these everyday amusing things, because the everyday is often quite comic, often quite funny things happening. So I wrote about these things. On the blog in which I wrote, I had lots of lofty, serious things, but what people really seemed to like was the humorous stuff, because every day I'd write some little cartoonish thing, a bit like a strip cartoon in the newspaper. And what I did in the end, you know, encouraged by publishers, was to turn these, um, these, these fragments into something longer. And they became novels and novels I found really suited me because a novel can include anything. So that's what I love about the novel. It can be it, it, it can just include all kinds of crap, all kinds of nonsense. Beckett wrote in, in a letter, I think it was, when he listens to himself, it's not literature that he hears. When I listen to myself, when I think about the lives in which life I lead, I don't find much literature in it. When I, when I hang out with my friends, even friends who are interested in, in philosophy, it's not very philosophical life. It's ordinary. It's prosaic. It's about eating cornflakes or buying socks or waiting for the bus or having st- or making stupid jokes at each other's expense. That is the prose of life. And that's why I think the novel honours. You know, it, it did that from um, Don Quixote onwards. So for me, it's a, it's a wonderful genre because it, it, it can encompass bathos, comic bathos. I expected the comic bathos, which you get after reading Blanchot or Beckett or Bernhard or Duras. I'm thinking, here I am, living a prosaic British life, waiting for the bus. It's really grey. It's raining. That, for me, is what the novel allows. It's interesting. So it's because, like, I guess cinema is a type of folk form, uh, to use the words of Charles Mingus. But the idea there is, like, I think, interestingly, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but André Bazin, the great French cinema theorist, he, he, he puts cinema in 
as an extension of the novel rather than an extension of uh, the photograph, which you might think might be a more, nat- a more natural index uh, for cinema. But uh, the reason is, I think, that it's because it's it's an extension of exactly the same things that you're, you're talking about. It's a popular art form, uh, and it can talk about marketing, it can talk about merchandise, it can talk about... I mean, I mean that's what Ulysses is, isn't it? That's what Ulysses does. It's about... Ulysses is set in Dublin, and it started in the 20th century, features a Jewish bloke called Leopold Bloom going around looking at all types of different types of writing. He's looking at the ephemera of culture. He's looking at the racing farm. He's looking at posters. And of course, Bloom is an advertiser, isn't he? He's a, he works in the advertising industry. It's all about the merch, you know? So there's something terribly... I think this is what you're saying, Lars, that, there's, that there's some, the novel is... There's something fundamentally free about the novel. For a writer, I mean, as well. Uh, and for a reader. That's right. And what's interesting to me is... Writing in a period where literature has lost its prestige, with the great names, the great signatures of modernism, and no longer exalted in the way they once were. I think I grew up in at the end of this, the tail end of this, where um, there's still these massive biographies being published of these various writers, huge great biographies, a thousand pages long, and the, the broadsheet newspapers in the UK would review them, you know, quite reverently. This is gradually falling away, and these great names are not names, you know, Beckett, Blanchard, these sorts of names, are not names with which people really feel the need to acquaint themselves now um, to have cultural capital. There are other things. So when you write in the wake of the prestige of the novel, um, you can have fun with that form. You can include very non-literary things in your literary writing, really ephemeral and silly things, without raising it to a literary level. And that's what I enjoyed doing in the first first few novels that I wrote, was trying to incorporate the absolute nonsense of the everyday, you know, the absolute um, the absolute comedy. But I should also say that, you know, as I um, even in those novels, as I've, as I've gone on, I think there there are things to write against. And this this emphasis we talked about this on um, on resoluteness on 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 planning on projects on marketing oneself on you know on on selling oneself uh, these things are things you can write against the actual act of writing can help can help, in the manner of a spiritual exercise can help you distance yourself from this kind of uh, self promotion you know where you can become open to language. You can become a kind of recipient of language. That's why I love to write in, this, in a, an increasingly musical form where the musical element of the writing is um, is that which, which carries you off, sweeps you away. And it's a great relief for me to write. So a lot of the fiction I write, you know, I write quite long novels now, but in order to produce them, I write an awful lot more, at least 12 times more than, you know, wow, huge, huge amount. And that, that means you've got to write every day. And every day you sort of lower yourself into this bath of writing, these rhythms and rhythms, this music. And that is a, 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 it's a wonderful um, letting go. It's a releasing of that firm and decided person you have to be in ordinary everyday life. So that for me is something I, I can do every day. It's a kind of spiritual exercise which allows me to escape the person this world makes me into. At the risk of sounding trite, it's therapeutic in some way then, would you say? Writing. It's just... It, it, it's a relief. It's an exhalation. It's capacity to breathe. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a, it's an opening of the eyes. So all these things, really. I mean, is it is it therapeutic? I suppose you know, it's similar in, in some ways to meditation. I don't know, because I suppose when I write, one of the things I really enjoy is, is to is to <laughs> let loose the dogs of my hatred. <laughs> <laughs> 
Look, tell us more. <laughs> I'm the kind of person I'm very I'm I'm a mild and pleasant I hope anyway, a mild and pleasant person to be around. Uh, I could confirm that, Lars. Yeah. I hope so anyway. I hope I'm mild and pleasant. But actually I'm full of um unconditional loathings and hatreds. Um <laughs> I'm full of it. I simply have to express it somehow, you know. It's a valve. It's a valve. something has to something has to give. So I do feel a pleasant sense of exhaustion after expressing some, you know, after after some invective against some 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 horror, something some plaque that someone's put up, uh, which really gets on my nerves. So things really irritate me. But the life I lead means I cannot show this because I'm a, a teacher at university. I have to be a pleasant person, and rightly so, of course, I should be a pleasant person. Why not? But you know, I have in me a great rage and fury against all kinds of things. So that's where what I'm doing is not therapeutic in the ordinary sense. Perhaps it's therapeutic if, like me, you're a secret maniac. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, to think to of the link between, because you're a philosopher as well. You've published books of philosophy, academic books of philosophy, and you've you've written articles and you've done all the academic stuff, but you're also, uh, you, were, you were a philosophy teacher for many years. You're now a creative writing teacher. Uh, university teacher, you're a lecturer. Um, I'm trying to think then, you know, about that link between philosophy and literature. And it's something I've devoted some time myself to thinking about. And some of the, the writers I'm obviously interested in are more philosophically inclined. You know, obviously there's people like Sartre. I've written about Cormac McCarthy and things like that. But I'm trying to think, based on what you say, how do we how do we tease out that link between philosophy, say, and a novel? And it's not like about... You know, it's not like a, a bad novel is something where you have, I don't know, philosophical ideas or where someone represents empiricism or something like that, which you do get. You do get to think of someone like Voltaire or something like that. But is it the novel that it's 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 kind of anti-political in some way? Or it's, it's anti-ideas. It's almost anti-intellectual, I think. It, you know, it kind of gets at abstract, maybe. This is what I'm trying to get at, Larry. It gets at abstract conceptions of life. And it brings them into the human sphere. It brings them into the ephemera and uh, the flotsam and jetsam of the prosaic, as you say. That, I think that's exactly right. For me, I began to write you know, all those years ago at my blog. I began to write my blog as soon as I got a permanent job, as soon as I got an academic position, which was open-ended, open-ended contract. I thought, right, I've got to drop this academic style of writing because it's, you know, I found it deadening. I found it really uncreative. I found it just, um, I found what I was doing was of just, just really, really boring stuff I was writing. I had to try and find a new form. I, I mean, I was, trying, I was modeling my form on the various authors who I admire and trying out different kinds of writing. And what I was trying to do is to answer this imperative, this vocation I've talked about, to try and respond in my own way to what I felt was a, a literary vocation. And the funny thing about literary vocation is you can feel it, but without having any ability to actually respond to it. There's a great novelist, Clarice Lispector, who writes about um, vocation in this way. She says, you know, she felt the vocation to write, Lispector writes. She felt the vocation to write, but she didn't know how to respond. She didn't have the talent to write. And that's what, you know, writing at the blog um, enabled me to try to do, to find a way in which to respond to this, to this call. Philosophy wasn't allowing me to do that. Well, eventually what I found was that my response to this vocation, to this call of writing, my response was to write about my inabilities as a philosopher, just to write about how bad I was at philosophy, how dreadful I thought what I wrote was, and what nonsense I thought I said that day, um, philosophically. So that's that became my sort of primal scene as a writer, was writing about my failure, 
And that's something which I found um, I could just simply write and write and write and write. Just wonderful. Because what you're doing, you're turning against yourself. You're turning against yourself as someone who can ostensibly think. You're turning against yourself as someone who actually has a job to try and um, uh, to carry forward a whole rich European tradition. So you're writing against yourself. You are subjecting yourself to this, this critique, this comedy, this laughter. So that's how writing began for me. And that's what led me a novel was that what sent me towards the novel. So it's the sense of having failed as a philosopher, having failed to think what I wanted to think and having to, having had to, to, to abandon my my ambitions as a philosophical writer. So it's precisely where I fail as a philosopher that the things became possible as a writer. And the marvel of creative writing and particularly of prose fiction is that you can succeed by writing about your failure. And isn't that an absolute miracle? You can write about how useless you are, <laughs> and yet that becomes a literary mode of writing. So that was the consolation that creative writing gave me. So in a sense, what I did with creative writing was to sacrifice my image of myself, if I ever had one, maybe I didn't really have one, but my image of myself as someone who's capable of philosophy in my own modest way, to sacrifice that, to let it burn. And that burning was the fiction that I produced. You wrote, a, you started on the blog, Lars, which is interesting. It's one of the things I've noticed, the blog is not really a thing anymore, is it? It's not as, it's, it's not as popular as it was in the early 2000s, early to mid-2000s, I think, when you were doing it. Is that, would that be fair to say? I start a new blog now for every novel. <laughs> so every novel has a new blog. There's, there's a blog for my new novel that I'm writing at the moment. There's a blog for the Vey novel, a blog for the Nietzsche novel. So each novel gets its own blog, um, but they have no readers because no one's interested. I don't, I, don't really tell anyone, I don't really tell anyone about them. I normally put one link somewhere to these um, to these blogs. Uh, I, put, I put a single link somewhere. If someone's really interested, they can follow it. But in general, I don't promote it. So I always use blogs. I, I, you know, I use blogs constantly for writing. Always, always, always. It's public diaries, aren't they, really, as a form? Yeah. yeah. Now, tell us about your most recent novel. Tell us about Maive, which is a novel about a philosopher, Seabod Vey. We've had someone on the podcast recently talking about Seabod Vey, Tiff Thomas and Manchester. Everybody can go back and listen to that. I'll put a link. But Seabod Vey is your, my Vey is your later, latest novel, which has just been out in the last couple of months. I'll put a link in the show notes again so people can, can check it out and go buy it. But what is, uh, what was, what was, uh, what are you trying to accomplish with this? Is this a, a new departure or are you c- continuing in the what you did in the Spurious Trilogy and your book at Wittgenstein and uh, your Nietzsche book, Nietzsche and the Burbs. Well, the idea here was to pay tribute, pay homage to those um, postgraduate students, PhD students in philosophy, people who are studying um, philosophy. I want you to remember the time in which I was a student back at Manchester Metropolitan studying for a PhD in philosophy. I want to, I want to think about all the other people working right now I often bump into at conferences who I speak to who are themselves doing this open-ended kind of study. I want to pay tribute to people who um, who've won scholarships of various kinds or are just about managing to hold themselves together, paying paying fees, working part time. Because I admire them so much. It's such a hard thing to do. It's a difficult thing to do. You are um, living a life which is very difficult. Yet you have to force yourself to read difficult books and think different difficult thoughts. Uh, but you're, you're marginalising yourself at the same time that you're doing that. You know, you're removing yourself from ordinary society, from from what your peers are up to. So you're separating yourself from the world and then you know you are now linked to the university and to, to other people like yourself you, you move into a new, uh, kind of nether world 
But I wanted to celebrate this amazing moment. I always think of um, Plato's Symposium, that great dialogue that Plato wrote. We have Socrates uh, talking about the uh, about Eros, the figure of Eros. And the figure of Eros for Socrates is barefoot, you know, a wanderer on the open road, not quite sure where he's going, the son of the god of plenty and the god of poverty. Between the two, never quite sure where he is going. And of course, Socrates is thinking of himself. Socrates also is barefoot. Socrates is also wondering. Socrates himself does not, doesn't know necessarily where he's going. This is the idea of the philosopher as someone who is captured by infinite eros, infinite desire. Isn't that wonderful that in today's world there are still pockets for people who can people can feel this this eros, this vocation, this calling and respond to it. So my way is a celebration of that whole life, that whole way of living. My characters take it even further for them. Even to write the dissertations is a betrayal of this eros. To really respond to the desire to philosophize means you write nothing at all. Just like Socrates, you write nothing and you wonder and you see where the day takes you. So that's my way. It's a celebration, it's an act of love for postgraduates all over the world. Postgraduate I was, postgraduates my friend, my friends were, to the postgraduates to come. Well, I really hope there are still postgraduates in the future. There's still, I got, I got a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's my act of love for all these fantastic people who've given up so much to study. And what's next? What are you working on now? You've hinted at a new book. What's uh, what's in the works? The new book, yes. The new one is set here in Newcastle. Um, it's set on a, on a new campus. It's all about the philosophy department being moved into what's basically a business studies department. I'm having fun with that at the moment. I'm just writing the opening scenes at the moment. <laughs> so it's a documentary, yeah? <laughs> you got, you got to go into non-fiction, Lars, yeah? <laughs> but this one has got a lot of romance in it, and it even has an erotic element, a properly erotic element, not just a Socrates erotic, but actually a real erotic element. That's my, that's my ambition. I want now to write work uh, which has a strong romantic component. And my ambition was always to write romances, but, you know, I never really got around to it. I, never, I, never, I, never, wasn't I got around to it. I, I was never able to do it. So now I'm going to have a go, um, having writing something more romantic, erotic. And, you know, I have a provisional title, which is Philosophy in the Bedroom. So, you know, you heard it here first. Philosophy, philosophy in the boudoir. Let's in there, Lars. Let's in there. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>